welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Six cases this week, and I had a ball. Lots of crimmigration. And, with the dearth of legal immigration news, I thought I'd take this opportunity to again thank the podcast's patrons. New patron Pablo Rodriguez, the business immigration psychology, Laura Kelly, Yuna Scott, Lorraine Marte, Andre Bokosian, Ola Olabunmi, and CPA and business consultant extraordinaire, Dave Burton. Care to join this illustrious list? Check out the Patreon page. See you on the other side of the cases. First up is Matter of C. Morgan, published by the BIA. Gonna start off with a trio of categorical approach cases. And it's been a while since we kicked it off with the BIA, but here we are. Don't take this as a sign that I condone your Friday afternoon publications, BIA. This decision is about theft-based aggravated felonies. Mr. Morgan is a lawful permanent resident from Jamaica. Now, he's removable for some drug offenses, but he also has a conviction for attempt to commit larceny in the third degree in violations of Section 53A-124 and 53A-49 of the Connecticut General Statutes. The immigration judge held that this conviction is an aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43U, a conspiracy or attempt to commit another aggravated felony, in this case a theft offense at Section 101A43G. For that reason, the IJ determined that Mr. Morgan was not eligible for immigration relief. But in this decision, the BIA disagreed. Section 101A43G defines as an aggravated felony, quote, a theft offense, including receipt of stolen property, or burglary offense for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year, end quote. The BIA believed that it was undisputed that Mr. Morgan's crime entailed a sentence of at least one year, and that the attempt definition used in Connecticut in this case satisfies an attempt as used in federal law at INA Section 101A43U. Would love to see the rationale on that latter issue, though. 
Anyway, with the issue so narrowed, it comes down to whether the crime Mr. Morgan attempted to commit, third-degree larceny in violation of Connecticut General Statute Section 53A-124, matches the federal definition of a theft offense. And that statute in turn incorporates Connecticut's general definition of larceny, which includes 17 different things done, quote, with intent to deprive another of property or to appropriate the same to himself or a third person, end quote. Now, the aggravated felony theft offense definition only includes crimes that criminalize the, quote, taking of property or an exercise of control over property without consent with the criminal intent to deprive the owner of rights and benefits, even if such deprivation is less than total or permanent, end quote. The definition does not include, quote, offenses in which a person or institution is tricked into voluntarily surrendering property to another, end quote. Those offenses may or may not be fraud, but they're not theft. And here, the BIA held that, quote, larceny as defined under Connecticut law does not distinguish between taking property with consent that was fraudulently obtained and taking property without consent, end quote. That's going to mean that it's not an aggravated felony. I'm sure you have some questions. Well, the first question for the BIA was, no matter the subsection of larceny, is the lack of consent way of committing it, you know, by fraud or deceit, an element of the crime rather than a mere means of committing it? That is, is larceny committed through theft a different type of larceny than is larceny committed through fraud under the statute? It is not. Under Connecticut state law, the lack of consent component of larceny is not divisible. In Connecticut, convictions can be obtained in all cases, it would seem, based on a showing that the victim simply had a, quote, lack of knowing consent, end quote. But that standard, a lack of knowing consent, can be satisfied simply through fraud or trickery. So the lack of consent element of the crime generally is not divisible and appears present no matter how you commit larceny. On the other hand, though, and again, there are 17 ways of committing larceny in Connecticut, and some of those ways appear to be pure theft crimes, but some are clearly not. For example, the Connecticut definition of larceny includes such acts like obtaining property by false pretenses, obtaining property by false promise, defrauding of public community, and, quote, airbag fraud, end quote. All of that might be fraud, and under the right circumstances, it might match the definition of a different aggravated felony at INA Section 101A43MI. But it's not a theft-aggravated felony under BIA precedent, quote, because they do not require the non-consensual taking of property, end quote. Now, if those 17 ways of committing the crime are elements rather than means, maybe the modified categorical approach will apply, and the BIA will be able to review the conviction documents to determine which of the 17 ways Mr. Morgan committed the crime. But the 17 ways are not divisible elements. They're merely means. And the BIA explains why with a great quote for divisibility generally. Here, the Connecticut law states that, quote, larceny includes but is not limited to, end quote, the following list. Quote, thereby making clear that the list is non-exhaustive, and its enumerated acts are merely examples of some of the myriad of ways larceny can be committed in Connecticut, end quote. I bet that that includes but is not limited to language appears in other criminal statutes, too. So, because the statute is not an aggravated felony, the BIA remanded for further consideration of Mr. Morgan's relief eligibility. Huge congrats to Charnette G. Noyes for Mr. Morgan. And I must have more. 
As incoming ALA National President Jeremy McKinney pointed out, this panel is not filled with, how should I put it, admirers of the categorical approach. Indeed, in footnote 9, the BIA panel string cites cases, apparently including this one, that it believes show that the categorical approach, quote, often leads to results that are contrary to common sense and that Congress did not intend, end quote. At a minimum, that really shows how powerful the categorical approach can be and how it's required to be applied no matter the underlying factual basis. And as Aaron Hall pointed out on Twitter, the stronger argument might be that for most offenses, Congress intended, right or wrong, for the conviction rather than the conduct to be the basis for removability. Anyway, moving on, apparently the Second Circuit has issued two published decisions contrary to this BIA decision on the exact same Connecticut statute. And because the circuits don't owe any deference to the BIA decisions interpreting whether criminal statutes match the agreed-upon federal definition of a removable offense, this conviction may still be an aggravated felony in the Second Circuit. However, apparently those Second Circuit decisions were deferring to an outdated BIA definition of what precisely a theft-type aggravated felony is, something that the circuits generally do owe deference to. So actually, the Second Circuit decisions, both of which are over a decade old, might no longer really be good law. Because again, they were based on Chevron deference, deferring to the BIA's own definition of a federal theft offense, which has been changed in the interim. Plus, the Second Circuit threw some serious shade on its own precedent in an unpublished 2017 decision. Finally, and before I get too giddy, the BIA again notes that Attorney General Barr's decision in matter of Reyes may have led to a different conclusion in this case had the IJ concluded that there was a loss to the victim of over $10,000. That is, the fraud ways of committing this offense may match a different aggravated felony, so under matter of Reyes, the conviction, no matter how it's committed, matches at least one aggravated felony. I note again that the only tribunal that is ever cited to this new matter of Reyes analysis is the BIA, and I believe only in footnotes. Attorney General Garland may desire to look into his predecessor's decision. And that is matter of C. Morgan. Next is Leterve, U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on March 17, 2022. Another case on CIMTs by that same panel from three weeks ago, if anyone else is paying attention. Mr. Latour became an LPR in 2007, but in 2010 he pled guilty to burglary of an unoccupied dwelling in violation of Florida Statute Section 810.023b. An IJ and then the BIA determined that the conviction was a crime involving moral turpitude, meaning, because it was committed within five years of his obtaining LPR status, it made Mr. Latour removable under INA Section 237A2AI. At both the IJ and BIA level, Mr. Latour's attorney kept arguing that the Florida 2nd DCA's 1990 decision in State v. Bennett precluded a CIMT finding. More on that in a minute. Neither the IJ nor BIA ever discussed Mr. Latour's argument or the Bennett case. The 11th Circuit, however, did recognize Mr. Latour's argument and agreed with it. But before it did, the 11th Circuit first agreed that Florida Statute Section 810.02 is divisible, meaning that Mr. Latour's conviction under subsection 3b is, for example, a separate crime than is, say, subsection 2a. That permits the 11th Circuit and the IJ and BIA, for that matter, to look to the conviction documents and determine that, indeed, Mr. Latour was convicted under Section 810.02 3b. 
and it also means that the CIMT analysis is much more narrow. To be removable, only subsection 3b must be a CIMT. The entirety of section 810.02 need not. That's why divisibility is so important, and that's why the courts and I are always talking about it. To make the finding, the main reason relied upon by the 11th Circuit was that the different subsections, subsections 2, 3, and 4, for example, entail different criminal penalties. That's a rationale being used more and more often post the Mathis decision. In addition, the 11th Circuit held that based on the statutory text and statutory scheme as a whole, subsection 3 was itself internally divisible, as between sub-subsections A through F. Not great for Mr. Latour, but important to remember. Just because a subsection is divisible doesn't mean that a sub-subsection is also divisible. The divisibility analysis must be conducted every step of the way. Alright, fine. Why does it all matter? It matters because under long-standing BIA precedent, a burglary-type offense is not a CIMT if, quote, the crime intended to be committed at the time of entry or prior to the breaking out, end quote, does not itself involve moral turpitude. Simply breaking and entering a building is not necessarily a CIMT. And broadly speaking, quote, burglary under Florida law requires only that the defendant enter the premises in question with the intent to commit any other offense, end quote. So that's not a CIMT, because it encompasses every other offense. But we're not talking broadly speaking, because again, the statute is divisible. We're talking sub-subsection 3b only. And in the 2009 decision, Matter of Lusant, the BIA clarified its long-standing precedent a bit, and with Florida burglary specifically, to hold that, quote, burglary of an occupied dwelling with the intent to commit any crime therein, in violation of Florida Statute Section 810.02-3a, is a CIMT, end quote. But remember, we're talking sub-subsection 3b, not 3a. But the bigger point is important to hold. Burglary of an occupied dwelling will be a CIMT in most cases. And the BIA then extended Lusant in matter of JGDF to hold that, quote, an Oregon statute criminalizing the burglary of an unoccupied dwelling is a CIMT, provided that the dwelling is at least intermittently occupied, end quote. So the BIA has been expanding the CIMT definition for burglary based largely on the occupancy status of the building burglarized. The 11th Circuit found all of that reasonable, and in doing so agreed with at least the 9th Circuit's decision on direct petition for review of matter of JGDF in Diaz Flores v. Garland, discussed on episode 50 of the podcast. And it also appears to agree with the 2017 4th Circuit decision. Okay, so we've got the federal definition that keeps evolving over time of a burglary-type CIMT. But Mr. Latour argued, and it seems the BIA recognized, that subsection 3b's text applies to burglaries of dwellings that are never occupied, even intermittently. That would seem to make this crime not a CIMT. The BIA sought to avoid that holding by applying an expansive interpretation of the realistic probability test, holding that even if the text does indeed seem to foreclose a CIMT finding, Mr. Latour still needs to find a case in Florida where Florida actually criminalized burglarizing a dwelling that's never occupied. Putting aside that that might not be how the realistic probability test is applied in the 11th Circuit or the majority of circuits, quote, the problem with the BIA's analysis is that Mr. Latour did present a Florida case allowing a burglary prosecution for entry into a dwelling that had never been occupied, end quote. 
the Florida 2nd DCA's 1990 decision in State v. Bennett. In that case, the Florida court held that, quote, an unsold and prefabricated mobile home on a sales lot, which was fully furnished but unoccupied and not connected to utilities, could constitute a dwelling for purposes of a burglary prosecution, so long as it was actually to be used for habitation, end quote. And according to the 11th Circuit, quote, an unsold mobile home on a sales lot does not present the same type of privacy and safety concerns that inhabited dwellings typically present, end quote. Great fine, counsel. Case remanded. And while Bennett might not actually win the day on remand, oil seems to have some arguments, the BIA certainly erred by ignoring the issue entirely. Also, there's a later Florida Supreme Court case that held, quote, occupancy is no longer a critical element under the statutory definition of burglary, end quote, in Florida. Quite frankly, that might have far-reaching implications for these type of CIMTs. Congratulations, counsel, unnamed in these day of 11 circuit decisions. And of course, congratulations, Mr. Latour. Few more things. First and admittingly, there is language and analysis in this decision that may, indirectly, support an expansive interpretation of a non-citizen's burden under the realistic probability test that's not in line with the 11th Circuit's Ramos decision or other recent published decisions affirming Ramos and discussed on the podcast. Tread carefully in all these cases and be prepared to combat that interpretation in your 11th Circuit categorical approach arguments. On a more positive note for non-citizens, in a footnote, of course, the 11th Circuit made clear, relying on its Armed Career Criminal Act precedent, that this very conviction in Florida is also broader than the generic definition of burglary, and it does not match the definition of an aggravated felony crime of violence. Remember that. Finally, with all the CIMT discussion of late and forthcoming, I think it's important to come back to base a bit and I stumbled upon a very nice quote doing so during some research this week, in this case from the Ninth Circuit's decision, Hernandez-Gonzalez v. Holder, so I thought I'd share it. Quote, At some level, all illegal acts violate societal norms and values. That is why the acts are illegal. However, crimes involving moral turpitude is a limited category of crimes and does not extend to cover all conduct that violates the law. Only truly unconscionable conduct surpasses the threshold of moral turpitude. End quote. Assuming, of course, that that term is even constitutional. And that is Lachar, the U.S. Attorney General. Next is Cupetti v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on March 16, 2022. This case is also about CIMTs. Mr. Cupetti appears to have entered the U.S. without authorization in 2003. In 2014, he was arrested and eventually pled guilty to having made or used a false writing or document in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. DHS initiated removal proceedings by, you guessed it, serving Mr. Cupetti with an NTA that lacked the date, time, and location of his first removal hearing. But it looks like DHS may have got his address wrong, and so it seems served two more NTAs upon him in the mail. The third one reached him, and it contained the required first hearing information. How about that? Didn't see that coming. 
Mr. Cupetti conceded removability and applied for cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, asserting that, quote, his removal would cause hardship to his wife and three children, all of whom are United States citizens, end quote. But if his conviction is a CIMT, or crime involving moral turpitude, he's ineligible for the relief. The IJ and then the BIA held that it was. And here, so did the Second Circuit. Now first off, and as stated in a footnote, the Second Circuit has previously held in the non-immigration context that the various subsections of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001 are means rather than elements of the offense. That means that the statute is not divisible. So either all of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001 is a CIMT, or none of it is. And by the way, the Second Circuit so stated this in a footnote despite the fact that its divisibility decision on the issue predated Mathis by 10 years. The Second Circuit does not deem it overly probative that a divisibility analysis favorable to non-citizens predates Mathis. Anyway, and passive-aggressive rant aside, the Second Circuit held here that the entirety of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001 is morally turpitudinous, thereby agreeing with the BIA's 2013 decision on the same issue in matter of Pinzone. And to get there, it's because the Second Circuit agrees with the BIA that crimes that, quote, impair or obstruct an important function of a department of the government by defeating its efficiency or destroying the value of its lawful operations by deceit, graft, trickery, or dishonest means involve moral turpitude, end quote. So that's the CIMT standard for crimes such as this, which leaves only one question. Is the entirety of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001 such a crime? Always? It is. To secure a conviction under Section 1001, the government must show that a defendant 1. knowingly and willfully, 2. made a materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement, or falsified or concealed a material fact, or made or used a false writing or document, 3. In relation to a matter within the jurisdiction of a department or agency of the United States. 4. With knowledge that it was false or fictitious or fraudulent. The Second Circuit held that with that definition, it always requires a knowing and willful intent to act, and it always requires deceit in an effort to trick the U.S. government. That's a CIMT, so says the Second Circuit. Apparently, the Sixth Circuit and Seventh Circuits have similarly held, in addition to the BIA. So, Mr. Cupetti is ineligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal because he in fact pled guilty to a CIMT. And one more thing. Mr. Cupetti had also argued that the existence and service of the first efficient notice to appear meant that the immigration judge lacked jurisdiction over his removal proceedings. The Second Circuit rejected the argument, affirming, as all courts have, that deficient NTAs aren't jurisdictional. Not gonna lie, though, it seems like the Second Circuit may be confusing notices of hearing with NTAs in this decision and basing its rejection of Mr. Capetti's argument in part on that confusion. I don't know. I really don't. It's a bit confusing. But regardless, it's pretty well settled that deficient NTAs aren't jurisdictional. Might establish claims processing rule violations, though. Stop me if you've heard it before. And that is Gupetti v. Garland. Moving on, we go to the Fifth Circuit with Garcia v. Garland, published on March 14th, 2022. This case is about motions to reopen. 
Mr. Garcia is from Mexico and accepted voluntary departure in 2001. He left, and he re-entered the U.S. without authorization. In 2004, he was served with a notice to appear, charging him as removable. The NTA lacked the date, time, and location of his first removal hearing. It appears that Mr. Garcia may have applied for asylum but did not succeed, and he was ordered removed. He appealed, lost, and was physically removed in 2010. He re-entered again without authorization. In the United States and in 2018, Mr. Garcia filed a motion to reopen, alleging that the notice to appear was deficient under the Supreme Court's Pereira decision, because with the missing information, it deprived the IJ of jurisdiction to adjudicate his case. The motion was denied. Mr. Garcia then filed a second motion to reopen, asking the BIA to reopen his case based on changed country conditions in Mexico, so that he could apply for asylum again. In the motion, he asserted that he was gay, that conditions had worsened for LGBT individuals since his removal order became final, and that those circumstances were made worse by his personal change in circumstances as he had become HIV positive in the interim. According to Mr. Garcia, things had become even worse in Mexico for HIV-positive LGBT men. The BIA denied the motion. Mr. Garcia challenged the denial of both motions before the Fifth Circuit, here. First, the jurisdictional deficient NTA-based motion to reopen. While the argument was foreclosed by the Fifth Circuit in 2019, things have changed since then, namely, Ms. Chavez's publication by the Supreme Court. And indeed, things have changed. Namely, the receipt of a notice of hearing no longer fixes DHS's failure to provide all information required of an NTA in the NTA. But that doesn't mean that a deficient NTA is jurisdictional. According to the court, it remains the case, even after the favorable holding in Rodriguez v. Garland, that motion to reopen case in the in absentia context, that, quote, the regulations govern what an NTA must contain to constitute a valid charging document, end quote and those regulations don't require an INA Section 239A compliant NTA to confer jurisdiction on the immigration court. Fair enough. I'll stop to note, though, as I so often do, that the Fifth Circuit does not discuss, because the parties apparently did not bring it up, whether failure to comply with the statutory and regulatory NTA requirements violate a mandatory claims processing rule that can nevertheless lead to dismissal of proceedings when properly asserted. On to the second motion to reopen, though, the Change Country Condition Asylum motion to reopen. To succeed in the Fifth Circuit, quote, to show change country conditions, petitioners must draw a meaningful comparison between the conditions in their home country at the time of the motion to reopen and those at the time of the removal hearing, end quote. A mere, quote, continuation of a trend, end quote, will not cut it. And here, honestly, at least according to the Fifth Circuit, it appears that Mr. Garcia did not explain how his new evidence of changed country conditions for LGBT individuals or HIV LGBT individuals had materially changed between his removal hearing and his motion to reopen. Seems like the Fifth Circuit kind of wanted a better brief. Either that, or the Fifth Circuit just doesn't see a sufficient enough change in the evidence and is couching its holding in terms of burdens. Either way, Mr. Garcia did not succeed and will not have his case reopened. And here's a practice pointer. For what it's worth, I have personally found it helpful when submitting change country condition motions to reopen based on Department of State reports as occurred here to make a chart 
placing portions of the relevant reports side by side and explaining, relevant page by relevant page and section by section, why there's a material change. Because these Department of State reports usually follow the same pattern year to year, so often it really is possible to see what's changed. If, of course, the evidence is there, and of course supplemented by other evidence of changed country conditions. And that is Garcia v. Garland. Next is Hernandez Garmendia v. Garland, published by the Third Circuit on March 16, 2022. This case is about asylum and due process. Mr. Hernandez Garmendia is from El Salvador and in the United States without authorization. DHS arrested him and placed him in removal proceedings, alleging that he did not have authorization to be in the U.S., and additionally, that he was an active MS-13 member. He represented himself before the IJ and applied for asylum and related relief. Quote, he explained that in 2012, an unknown person shot his uncle because of a rivalry or animosity between them. End quote. He did not succeed on his application for many reasons, including, as the IJ explained, because Mr. Hernandez Garmendia's, quote, testimony that he was only a lookout and able to exit the MS-13 gang by simply asking to do so was completely inconsistent with the operations of MS-13, end quote. Noted. The BIA affirmed. Somewhere along the way, Mr. Hernandez Garmendia obtained an attorney, but here, the Third Circuit affirmed the BIA. And really, he was in big trouble on the petition for review, because apparently Mr. Hernandez Garmendia did not challenge the BIA's finding that his asylum application was untimely or that he was not credible. So that's going to tank him nearly completely. Nevertheless, the Third Circuit adjudicated the substance of his claims. And so, on the merits, even assuming a valid particular social group as part of his uncle's family, the Third Circuit held that Mr. Hernandez Garmendia, quote, could neither identify the individual who shot his uncle and whether the shooter was in a gang, nor provide a reason why his uncle was shot. There is also no evidence in the record that the shooter was a public official or member of forces that the government is unable or unwilling to control, end quote. Steep omissions and facts to get over for an asylum or a convention against torture, claim. Plus, the uncle and many other family members are apparently living safely in El Salvador in the same house as before to this day. Now, Mr. Hernandez Garmendia also claimed on petition for review that his due process rights were violated. And indeed, non-citizens in removal proceedings have the due process right at a minimum to quote 1. Fact-finding based on a record produced before the decision-maker and disclosed to him or her. 2. The opportunity to make arguments on his or her own behalf. And 3. An individualized determination of his or her interests. End quote. That's your standard. Nor must certain due process claims be brought before the BIA to be exhausted on petition for review at least in the Third Circuit, and subject to exceptions. Good case law in this decision on administrative exhaustion generally, Third Circuit practitioners. But to even potentially succeed on such a due process claim, a non-citizen must establish prejudice as a result of the violation. Here, Mr. Hernandez Garmendia argued, in essence, that the IJ violated his due process rights because the IJ did not assist him enough when he, pro se, was trying to bring his asylum claim. But the Third Circuit believed that, in fact, the transcript of proceedings showed that the IJ did sufficiently assist Mr. Hernandez Garmendia. Note the implicit holding, though, that an IJ has such a duty. 
so it would seem. Mr. Hernandez Gramdia also asserted on petition for review that he was not mentally competent to participate in removal proceedings, as the BIA's seminal decision on the subject, matter of MAM, requires. But under matter of MAM, quote, only if the individual presents indicia of incompetency and the IJ determines that the individual lacks sufficient competency is a duty triggered to impose safeguards on the proceedings, end quote. In this case, quote, not only were there no indicia of mental incompetency, Mr. Hernandez Garmendia engaged in a responsive and appropriate colloquy with the judge, consulted with counsel, and presented evidence on his behalf, end quote. So according to the Third Circuit, matter of MAM was never implicated, meaning that no mental health safeguards needed to be taken to satisfy due process. So, the Third Circuit affirmed the BIA. And that is Hernandez Garmendia v. Garland. Finally, we have Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on March 18, 2022. This case is about good moral character. Judge Kelly dissented. And the Eighth Circuit provided quite the factual background. Mr. Hernandez is from Mexico and has lived in the U.S. since 1997. He lives in Iowa with his wife and three children, and works at a dairy farm milking cows and administering them medications. He's an active churchgoer who volunteers, fundraises, and gives to charity. It appears, however, that he's been living in the U.S. without authorization. And in 2007, he was arrested for getting into a fight with men who had insulted his wife. Then in 2019, he got into an argument with his wife. He left the argument, but he went to go drink to cope, and he flipped his car while drunk. No one was hurt and nothing was damaged except the car. He was, quote, charged with operating a motor vehicle without the owner's consent and operating a vehicle while intoxicated, end quote. He has no convictions. The charge remains pending. In removal proceedings, he applied for the only thing he really could, non-LPR cancellation of removal, under INA Section 240AB. He explained how out of character the drinking incident was, supported by all the evidence of his good character over his 25 years in the U.S. However, all told, the IJ held that the equities, quote, did not outweigh the severity of the pending alcohol-related offenses, end quote. The IJ held that this means that Mr. Hernandez lacked good moral character, as is required for non-LPR cancellation of removal. The IJ did not reach whether Mr. Hernandez had established the necessary exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen children, a factor that the BIA and circuit precedent has held should be considered in totality in a discretionary determination at least. So Mr. Hernandez made that argument and more to the BIA. The BIA affirmed the IJ and declined to remand for the submission of additional medical and mental health records and other character evidence as Mr. Hernandez requested. The Eighth Circuit majority affirmed the BIA. The Eighth Circuit did so by stating as follows, quote, While the BIA's decision is superficial and mechanical, and was dispatched with the level of brevity that we do not condone and may not accept in the future, we find no error warranting remand under the particular circumstances of this case, end quote. Perhaps this is why Judge Kelly dissented. Indeed, while the BIA's decision is, quote, disappointingly conclusory, end quote, the Eighth Circuit believes its review limited on petition for review for such issues, and that the BIA applied and recited the correct standards of review. The Eighth Circuit believes that, quote, the BIA has perhaps received from the courts more deferential review than it is due, end quote, 
and it reminded the BIA that, quote, it must resist the temptation to summarily dismiss, or worse yet, ignore, a non-citizen's claims and arguments as though they are nothing more than routine, end quote. Yet, the record here, quote, contains evidence of more than a single lapse in judgment and is sufficient to offset the positive factors Mr. Hernandez presented, end quote. So despite its disappointment, the Eighth Circuit upheld the BIA. Judge Kelly in dissent believes that remand is required, particularly as the BIA only provided three sentences in support of its de novo review on the issue of moral character. One more thing before we conclude. While left unsighted in the Eighth Circuit's majority decision, the IJ and BIA may have had Attorney General Barr's 2019 decision in matter of Castillo-Perez in mind when it reached the moral character finding. Because in that decision, the former Attorney General held that, quote, evidence of two or more convictions for driving under the influence during the relevant period establishes a presumption that a non-citizen lacks good moral character, end quote. Not quite the facts here, but it's obviously relevant. It remains unclear whether the current Attorney General agrees with the former Attorney General's decision to create a legal presumption not contained in the statute or the regulations. And that is Hernandez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.